It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. The annual meeting of the Southeast Conference kicks off in Sitka today, and in its annual report, Southeast by the Numbers, the organization is pointing to an economic renaissance for the region. Melani Shivens directs Raincoast Data, which partners with the organization to gather data on hundreds of economic indicators throughout the region. She says throughout the region, job growth is up or flat in every sector except state government. We've had a lot of uh, Southeast by the Numbers presentations that have been a little bit dark. They've been they've been a little depressing. Um, nobody's thrown rotten tomatoes at me yet, but sometimes I feel like they want to. But this year, we actually have just a really positive report. Uh, things have been really headed in the right direction, thanks to the work of so many people, thanks to having these planning documents and, and moving the economy forward together. So we're looking at, at an economy where jobs are up by 5%, wages are up by 11%, GDP is up. Inflation's actually coming down. Southeast Conference isn't just about jobs, though. It's about reviewing economic data, and it's about developing a long-term planning strategy for Southeast Alaska's economy across industries. Other events include a legislative forum, a panel on the growing AmeriCulture industry, a presentation on the future of transportation in the state, and another on housing in the region. Registration is required to attend the Southeast Conference. One-day fees start at $225 to attend in person. You can find a link to more registration information on our website, kcaw.org. You can also register to attend Southeast Conference virtually. Tune in to KCAW's full interview with Shivens and Southeast Conference Executive Director Robert Venables this morning at 8.16 a.m. Although the summer troll season has been extended to September 30th, for most of the fleet, the salmon season in Southeast Alaska is wrapping up. The big takeaway so far? The fish were there, but the market wasn't. Chum and pink runs were very strong, but many processors slashed prices and stopped buying the fish early. They blamed a global glut of salmon. Bo Meredith has been working with salmon in Southeast for nearly 25 years, first as a commercial fisherman and then as an area management biologist for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. He's based out of Ketchikan. He spoke with Coast Alaska's Angela Denning about what state managers have been seeing with this year's salmon runs, starting with King Salmon. Another year of mixed returns. Assessment is ongoing. We, right now, out of the 11 monitored Southeast Chinook stocks, six have made goal, three have missed goal, and two are as yet to be determined. And those two to be determined stocks are the are the top two in the team. And that will be finalized here in another couple of weeks when they're big long systems and they should take their time getting where they're going and then we right throughout September into early October. Okay. And how did sockeyes in Southeast do this year in terms of their returns to the water systems? Generally, it was good. We had a couple stocks in southern southeast that did not perform well. Houston sockeye being first and foremost on my mind, but generally the the Chilkat, Chilkoot, and Haines, the Taku out of Juneau, and the Stikine River, which are the big driver sockeye systems in the region, did well. They were at or above their preseason forecast, and in all four of them, I should say, met the lower end of their escapement goals. And then you, of course, have some silver lining with readout lake sockeye on the outside of Baranoff that had its highest sockeye return ever. It had liberalized, you know, sport, personal use, subsistence, commercial fishing opportunities. 
and it still achieved its record escapement. Now, essentially, it seems like the pinks and chum runs, the fish were there, it's just the market wasn't. Well, the chums were a little different, and that's primarily hatchery-driven chums, and the chum return for Southeast in general was exceptionally strong. I think overall we went into the season with the hatchery forecast of 9 million. Um, our chum harvest right now is over 13 million, and that's probably going to creep up as we get fish tickets finalized. And that was the chum return, you know, peaks in, you know, third, fourth week in July. So at that point in the season, the price was maintaining at the 50 and 60 cent level. It's still a big drop from last year's price of 115, but those fish still had value early on in the season when the majority of the chum returns came back. I think the price ended up dropping on August 3rd or 4th, when again, you're you're past the peak for those summer chum returns. The pinks really start ramping up, you know, that third, fourth week in July, and at the time when the chums are starting to ramp down. But both of them overall ended up extremely strong throughout the region. And then moving on to cohos, I mean, we're in September, they're still running, but what can you tell us about them? Coho indicators look really good. We've had, you know, extended fishing time of District 1 of District 11. District 11 is targeting the primarily Takulu Coho run. The Power Troll CPW for Coho on the outside waters is the highest it's ever been, I believe. It's certainly well above the 20-year average. And you're going to see at some point today a, a troll extension for coho through the end of the month, which, you know, typically happens on a big coho abundance year. But like you said, it's it's early and we don't start enumerating coho in the catch can area until early October. The Taku has a pretty good assessment project and the fish wheels and the, and the numbers through the Taku are doing extremely well right now. And I think you'll see continual opportunity for the inside gillnet fisheries through the end of the month, maybe even into early October. And, you know, to be determined on what the final run side will be, but it's it's looking very good right now. And again, to see the numbers like we're seeing for the troll CPV on the outside waters is interesting because it's a little bit late, suggesting the go run might be a little bit later as well. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking us through uh, species by species. Do you have any other takeaways from this season that you could share? Um, you know, every season is unique and different, and this one was certainly no exception. Bo Meredith is an area management biologist with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. He spoke with Coast Alaska's Angela Denning. An unidentifiable golden orb was found deep in the Gulf of Alaska by a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration research ship mapping the ocean floor late last month. Scientists are unsure of what it is and have no idea when answers could be available. But as KMXT's Brian Venois reports, discovering things new to science is an everyday occurrence aboard the vessel. The crew of the Okeanos Explorer found the orb late last month and it ended up making national headlines for stumping the ship's scientists. Sam Candio is an expedition coordinator aboard the NOAA ship. I'm not even sure that that was the most interesting thing on that dive. We aboard pretty much forgot about it. Um, And then once it started getting all the media attention, it was just like, oh, this is what everybody's focused on. Candio says they had no idea the public would be so fascinated by it. Researchers still haven't been able to identify the golden orb. We don't know what it is, and I haven't gotten any compelling ideas from people ashore. But a lot of the theories right now are kind of the same ones that we had when we first came across it. Could be some sort of sponge, maybe a coral. I'm on the egg case train. 
It was found about two miles deep on the ocean floor during the ship's work along Alaska's coastline this year. Underwater, the orb looked a bit more circular and had kind of a golden shine, but when the drone brought a sample to the surface, it was a matte brown and had a flaky texture with a hard center. Scientists aboard the ship took several photos and ran tests, but Candio says the crew will have to send it to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History for further analysis. All of our samples, we took a lot this expedition. We got a lot of things that are new to science, which is really exciting. And so we're processing all of them, making sure that we get them all packed away um, safely. He says the crew was also intrigued by the egg, but on that particular dive, they were more fascinated by seeing octopi tending to eggs. That's previously been a rare sight. The Okeanos Explorer is about to complete its work in Alaska. The ship's last stop is in Seward, and the crew will head to San Francisco for the winter. Candio says he was glad to visit so many places around the state. Just seeing how incredible all the life and the, the landscapes and the geology and how diverse and beautiful it was with crazy coral forests and chemosynthetic communities and, and pretty much everything you could hope to see. It's just amazing to see that both on land and at sea. The boat is scheduled to begin mapping waters around Hawaii next year. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Benwa. Three Anchorage teens will be in North Carolina next month to present at the World Anti-Bullying Forum as part of the nonpartisan organization Youth Vote. The teens have developed their own presentation on how youth empowerment can prevent bullying. Edison Wallace Moyer is a junior at West Anchorage High School. She'll be presenting and says youth have unique insight on this issue. Youth have a better understanding of bullying just by virtue of they're the ones being bullied. Like, we're the ones that are seeing the behavior, we're the ones that are experiencing it. Madison, whose family prefers her last name not be used, is a high school sophomore in Anchorage. She helped develop the curriculum and says bullying looks different for their generation because there's much more online or cyberbullying. And Madison says she's proud that Youth Vote has been the only youth-led organization presenting at this conference in past years. When I knew when we presented with the World Anti-Bullying Forum that we were actually one of the only youth organizations that were there to present, I thought that was something that was really cool and empowering because I think a lot of kids don't really get that empowerment in themselves to know that they have the ability to be able to speak out. This year, the World Anti-Bullying Forum says they're prioritizing youth voices. The conference includes adults working in fields relevant to youth, like educators, legislators, and social workers. The last time it was held, people from 40 different countries attended. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.